Welcome to the Deep End of Public Education. My name is Kristen Grubbs, and I am happy you're listening as this is the first in a small series of episodes I'm doing about the book my local school district chose to use for professional development training called Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity, The Keys to Successful Equity Implementation by Floyd Cobb and John Crownapple. This would be quite a swim as there's a lot to share, but we'll start the series off with an overview of the first four chapters discussing the work of equity in schools, defining inclusion and belonging, and how these authors believe these terms should fit into our schools. Let's not delay any longer. Hop on in and let's get swimming in the deep end of public education. To begin, I want to be clear about what my purpose is in discussing this book. My school district chose this book to be used as training material for our teachers and administrators. A person or group of people read this book and saw it worthy of spending district funds on. This person or group of people also deemed the information in this book valuable enough to invest in its use for professional development. The information I share from this book was seen, approved, and even praised by school board members at school board meetings. This book has also been used in community group meetings called D-Team, D for Dignity organized to get parents and other community members involved in the implementation of the ideas in this book. Because of its wide application in my district, I think it'd be wise to know what it entails and understand how it's being implemented. Floyd Cobb and John Crownapple wrote Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity in 2019, and my school district contracted with a company called The Core Collaborative for training based around this book as the authors had themselves contracted with The Core Collaborative to assist in training. My district's contract with this company and training in this book began in 2021. Let's dive on into belonging through a culture of dignity and see what these two authors have to say. The book starts off with Chapter 1 going over the unsuccessful attempts at making public education equitable. The authors state that for equity initiatives to succeed, we believe that educators must focus on shaping inclusive environments intentionally designed to foster a sense of belonging by honoring the dignity of each and every person. They go on to say, regardless of geographic region or size of the school district, our educational equity initiatives are not leading to meaningful change. Four pages into the book, the authors lay out a metaphor that they believe explains the failure of equity programs, policies, and training in schools over the years. Their metaphor is a story that's commonly called the streetlight effect. This is how the story goes. One dark evening, a policeman sees a man on his hands and knees searching for something under a streetlight and asks what he's looking for. The man, who's inebriated in the most popular version of the story, says he's lost his keys. Together they look on the pavement within the little circle of light cast by the street light. After 30 seconds or so, the policeman asks if the man is sure he's lost his keys here. The man replies, no, he lost them in the park. In amazement, the policeman asks why on earth is he searching under the street light? The man says, this is where the light is. Cobb and Crownapple go on to say, the lesson is that our field has a habit of searching for answers where it's easy to look. Trends, fads, buzzwords, edubabble, reactive patterns, solutions aimed at fixing people, or whatever hot interventions vendors are selling at the educational conferences. 
These belonging authors seem to think that equity does not fit into this type of approach to education. They quote the National Education Association, who in 2015 said it has been nearly 20 years since the increased focus on achievement gaps, but there still exists a marked disproportionality between student groups. The authors respond, saying, With so little progress and so much time, we need to ask if we've been searching for solutions in the wrong places. Before I go on, I want to address their claim that there has been so little progress and so much time. Let's just do a quick rundown of some U.S. history. 1863, Abraham Lincoln declared the Emancipation Proclamation and ushered the 13th Amendment into law outlawing slavery. 1868, the 14th Amendment declared protection under the law for all citizens, including freed slaves. 1954, Brown v. Board of Education decision to desegregate schools was a huge step toward implementation of equal treatment under the law. 1965, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act was passed. The Elementary and Secondary Education Act is the last major advancement in education, but it has been reauthorized under several different acts since then. In 1981, Education Consolidation and Improvement Act. 1994, Improving America's Schools Act. 2001, No Child Left Behind Act. 2015, Every Student Succeeds Act. Each of these are just newer iterations of the original act passed by President Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965. The authors of this belonging book claim that there has been very little progress in so much time. I beg to differ. Their book claims the achievement gap had only gained focus in the mid-1990s. This is false. The purpose of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965 was indeed to address the achievement gap. It literally stated this in its purpose. I want to back up a little further for a moment, since we're already discussing history. Since the issue of equity has always been focused on race and minorities, I think it'd be fair to look at American history regarding civil rights. From the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 to the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965, the efforts made in the United States at addressing inequality in race relations have been remarkably expedient. It may not feel like that since it still takes generations to see the effects of major changes. But when you consider that our country is only 246 years old, and if we date actual change in law back to the Emancipation Proclamation and 13th Amendment in 1863, our country has experienced 159 years of progressive change in how people are treated under the law. That means that over 60% of our country's existence has been spent fighting for and achieving new measures of equality under the law. I'm not saying that this changes the attitudes of people who live in this country. I'm just countering the claim that Cobb and Crown Apple make essentially that our country isn't even trying to address the issues at hand in education. In fact, if we look at just changes in education in our country, the progress made is even more impressive. In 1954, when Brown v. Board of Education was addressed in the Supreme Court, segregation was the norm. Students who weren't in affluent neighborhoods were receiving remarkably different education than those in wealthy areas. The achievement gap was immensely wide. With the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965, students in all areas of education began to reap more benefits from desegregated schools. 
In less than a dozen years, minority students were finally able to access opportunities they never before had been allowed to access. To me, this shows our country's focus on equal rights and the importance of education. Getting back to the book, to explain the repeated failure of equity efforts in schools, Cobb and Crownapple created what they call the dysfunctional cycle of equity work. This cycle is what they say schools experience when they implement equity in the wrong way. Essentially, a catalyst of some sort, whether a shooting or race-related event takes place, triggering a school district to respond with a public belief statement about equity for every student. This leads to a committee being formed, consultant being called in for training, division educators as to who agrees with the training, and then disinterest and follow-through. Practical approaches attempt at making up the failures of the training, only leading to no real change. Then the district is back at square one, where some students or educators feel like no one cares about equity and others feel distanced because of the district's approach to attempting equity. This, they say, tends to lead the districts back to attempting equity efforts only when another catalyst propels them to do so. Cobb and Crownapple say the reason current equity approaches don't work is the non-inclusive and non-welcoming certain students, families, or staff members don't belong climate that is inherent in our school system. They claim they address the question of how is it that we've granted ourselves permission to create classroom, school, district cultures where we can and do disregard the inherent value and worth of certain people. They go on to say, Unwelcoming environments where people do not belong are part of the legacy we inherited as educators in this country. I'm curious what they mean by this being something educators inherited. Maybe if we were back in the 1950s or 60s, the statement would ring true. But educators then were still dealing with the newly enacted integration of the schools. What evidence do these two authors have of such unwelcoming environments in schools across the country in recent years? One of my theories I'm working on as I research education is that the idea of belonging or inclusion in schools is more of a difference in attitude or perception. We'll explore this idea further as we go through this series of episodes about belonging through a culture of dignity. But for now, let's see what else Cobb and Crownapple have to say. In chapter two, the book introduces the idea of othering. The book says, it's people who end up implicitly agreeing on the reference point, defining the perceived other. How we define diversity from moment to moment is based on whatever criteria we choose. They then differentiate between two types of diversity, cognitive diversity and identity diversity. Cognitive diversity is defined as a hidden or unseen form of diversity that refers to how different individuals within a group process information in order to solve a problem. Identity diversity focuses on the often visible markers of difference, including race, gender, sexual identity, physical ability, and religion, among others. Interestingly, the rest of the book primarily addresses identity diversity. This isn't done directly, rather indirectly, by the language the authors use, the methods they suggest be employed, and the way they write about ineffective tools currently in educational systems. They then shift to discussing inclusion and how it is to be applied in professional development. Quote, first, we must note that the following three objectives of professional development won't, by themselves, 
result in systemic transformation. One, what educators should be against anti-injustice. Two, what educators need to do differently to get our desired results, behaviors. Three, how educators can think and act strategically to get our desired results, assumptions. They continue, quote, although changed thoughts and actions would certainly be present in a transformed system, the transformation itself requires a more substantial focus, who we need to become to get our desired results, identity. By focusing on identity, transformational learning engages people in examining their perceptions of who they are, assessing their roles or purpose, and changing their self-images into new ways of seeing themselves and their shared purpose. End quote. Oh, there's that word I mentioned, perception. But the way it's used in the book is referring to one's assessment of themselves, not their assessment of their environment or place in their school or society. Cobb and Crownapple say, instead of focusing people solely on what they are against, like bias, transformational learning starts with a positive vision that encourages people to, in turn, confront the reality of who they currently are as individuals and as an organization. They then define inclusion as engagement within a community where the equal worth and inherent dignity of each person is honored. An inclusive community promotes and sustains a sense of belonging. It affirms the talents, beliefs, backgrounds, and ways of living of its members. Before I move on, I want to bring attention to certain words in their definition. The word dignity, as used in this definition and throughout this book, is not the definition you might think. I'll explain what I mean by that in the second or third episode of the series on this book, but I want to note this so you're aware that it may be different than what you expect. Their use of affirm is interesting as it's saying that a community isn't being completely inclusive if they do not affirm a person's talents, beliefs, backgrounds, and ways of living. I feel it necessary to point out here that there's a stark difference between sharing a community with someone who believes or lives differently than you and actually affirming their different beliefs or way of living. To give an example, societal pressures nowadays are pressing people to affirm the LGBTQ lifestyle. Of the more than 332 million Americans, only around 7% are members of the LGBTQ community. This means that nearly 309 million Americans from all different races, countries, cultures, and religions are expected to not just live in community with LGBTQ people, but also affirm their lifestyle. One way this type of affirmation is being pressed into institutions is the forced use of preferred pronouns. If inclusion means affirming others' beliefs, even to the point of using pronouns for someone when those pronouns don't match their biological sex, then how come classrooms and public education aren't praying together? One might say that being LGBTQ isn't a belief, but a fact. There is no scientific way of measuring or proving a person's sexuality, just like there's no way of measuring or proving a person's faith. There's no objective way to determine either of these ways of life. That's not to say a person isn't truly Christian or Muslim or gay or lesbian. 
These are ways of living and, by law, cannot be forced on others. Cobb and Crownapple's use of affirm in their definition of inclusion is one of many red flags I found in their book. Essentially, they're saying no community will ever be inclusive. Again, I refer you back to my theory that it's all about perception. What I mean by this is, do people feel excluded because they perceive others do not want them there? Or do people feel excluded because they perceive they aren't where they deserve to be or where they will fit in? This belonging book strains to make a point about the American school system putting achievement above a person's well-being and sense of belonging. It reads in chapter 4, Achievement takes priority over personhood, relationship, community, and belonging. The authors claim that equity attempts in the past have only led to a larger achievement gap because the focus is on access to education. Their theory is that stressing achievement leads to schools improving access to more rigorous schoolwork and specialized programming, and that then leads to improved achievement levels, but only in schools that can afford it, leading to a widened achievement gap. It sounds to me like their complaint is not that access doesn't work. Rather, access isn't equally available. So if students across our country were to receive equal access to education, as our laws say they should already be getting, then maybe this would help close the achievement gap. Instead of addressing this issue of unequal access head-on, Cobb and Crown Apple turn their attention to students feeling a sense of belonging. They define belonging as the extent to which people feel appreciated, validated, accepted, and treated fairly within an environment. They say that when students feel they belong, they aren't worried and distracted about being treated as a stereotype or a thin slice of their multidimensional identities. Instead, they are confident that they are seen as a human being, a person of value. Just four pages later, their concept of belonging is shared in a new light, as longing to simply be. In context, they're discussing the struggles students experience when they're expected to constantly achieve to feel a sense of belonging. The authors say it's expressing the desire to exist, to belong, just as a student is. If belonging means to simply exist as a student, regardless of their grades or achievement level, then simply being in the school registered as a student would suggest they already belong. However, Cobb and Crownapple say It's not just being in that role of a student. Their definition goes deeper and says you aren't just to exist, but be appreciated, validated, accepted, and treated fairly. Belonging no longer means existing. It involves an extensive amount of interaction with those around you. I won't go into ability grouping and placement based on need in this episode, as we're coming near the end here but I want to share with you what belonging through a culture of dignity had to say about what this focus on achievement has created in our country. They say, Humiliation is the dark underbelly of the culture of achievement, and we've been complicit in maintaining this culture of humiliation within which students' innate need to belong and their worth is measured by their social and academic achievements. This humiliation they're speaking about is what they say results when a student doesn't achieve as expected or desired. This humiliation contributes to a feeling of exclusion and devaluing of their self-worth. I submit to you again my theory that this is all a matter of attitude and perception. 
if district schools, educators, and parents were to take up the attitude that each child learns differently, and it's up to each of them to figure out how each student learns, then tapping into each child's way of learning would unlock success for countless students and change the face of public education. For those who haven't achieved this attitude shift, the struggle still lies in trying to make classrooms of children learn in a way that only a fraction of them understand. If belonging is perceived in an outward way like Cobb and Crown Apple propose, meaning a student only feels a sense of belonging if others treat them a certain way, then expecting someone to feel like they belong in such an amazingly diverse country is ridiculously unreasonable. However, if belonging is perceived as an inward decision, like when someone chooses optimism over pessimism or joy over depression, then whether someone feels like they belong in an environment is completely independent of others' behavior. A student could feel like they belong because they've chosen to feel included. Consider this. A person emigrates to the U.S. seeking the freedoms our country offers. They arrive, follow the process of becoming a citizen, and make a life for themselves in our country. This person could barely speak English, have nothing in common with their neighbors or co-workers, but still feel a sense of belonging. Why? Because they chose to be here. They chose to make the journey. They took the steps towards citizenship. They decided they wanted to be a part of this great nation. They chose to belong. Therefore, they belong. This is their country. This is their home. They belong here. This brings us to the close of this episode. I'll dive more into Floyd Cobb and John Crown Apple's book, Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity, in my next episode, when we'll read more about belonging, culture, and how race plays into all of this. Thank you again for joining me in the deep end for the first of this series. I look forward to our next swim in the deep end of public education. Please be sure to like and subscribe so you can be notified when the next episode is available. Take care and God bless.